Welcome back to another episode of Off the Shelf, Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crisis. I am Augustus Wood, and I'm excited about this episode because I'm getting to bring to you all one of the premier thinkers on the issue of the anti-racist and anti-colonial question. And we're here now with one of the, one of the professors who has one of the best arguments and world experiences in dealing with these issues. And so I'm here with Ken Salo, professor in urban regional planning, and I'll get more to him in a second. So just knowing that we're going to have a dynamite episode today. But I want to first remind listeners that Off the Shelf is sponsored by the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And we are glad to bring you this podcast that, that talks about the more underseen and underappreciated readings, scholars, writings, et cetera, that speak directly to the crises that we're facing today in 2021. And we talked to prominent Black intellectuals and Black activists, et cetera, who have ideas about ways in which we can learn from what's happening now and questions that we can build upon to determine new intervention strategies to fix these problems. And that's what we're all about here at Off the Shelf is guiding the movement, guiding the building of intellectual curiosity back into how we deal with social problems. So let me, of course, again, welcome the great professor, Dr. Ken Salo, who is, like I said, he's faculty in the urban and regional planning department here at the University of Illinois. He is a dear colleague and friend of mine that I've worked with over many years at in different projects and organizations. He teaches courses on racism and issues within the city. And so we're gonna get a lot of this now. So thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Sala. Brother Gus, thanks for the opportunity again to break bread. As you said, we are living in a very dangerous moment. Yes. And um, yeah, it's the blessing is having brothers like you and fellow travelers over the years to share ideas. Because I think, as you know, we, we formulate and our ideas are, are, are created through these sorts of dialogues. So um, yeah, as I understand, you know, the request was to share with you what I've been thinking uh, about and what I've been reaching back to uh, in this time of crisis, right? Is that correct? Exactly, because again, we, we often see, and we talked about this in the past, in that one of the biggest, like I say, criticisms of the current moments in relation to the anti-racist mm -hmm. uh, push, the protest moments in the past summer with George Floyd, going back to 2015, yeah. 2014, uh, in relation to Ferguson, is that there was, a, there was a missing element of intellectual curiosity and rigor amongst a lot of the people and actually yeah. understanding, analyzing and creating an actual framework for how we're going to address it and also fight it in a legitimate way. And so right. I love the fact that you said that, that you're reaching back in this, mo in this moment because that's what we want our listeners to do. So talk mm. to us about when this started, particularly when the pandemic and I mean, it was really kind of a try a tri-headed monster when it happened because you had the oil war happening, you had the trade war happening, then you had the pandemic, then you had the white supremacist violence, you had all these things. You had, I mean, we were in a we're in a possible second Great Depression. 
And so, and not just in the United States, but worldwide. So talk to us, when it, when it first started last summer, what kind of things were you reaching back to? What were your thoughts, et cetera? And how was that? Yeah. How have you moved since then in the, in the anniversary of the pandemic? Yeah. So, yeah, thanks again uh, for the opportunity. So let me just say two things. You know, at our age and the sense of vulnerability, I'm very alert that this conversation is intended to be intergenerational. Yes. So I'm, that's, that's, that's the first part. So the idea of reaching back is also, of course, to look forward and to share whatever we can from our, our experiences. But I think uh, uh, you're absolutely right, as we've been taught, is, I mean, let's start with the lived experiences, you know, uh, at, at each moment and then see what uh, of the lessons that, uh, that we've learned or whose shoulders we, we stand on. So, yeah, we are living in, in, in dire times. Many authors have described it differently. Um, historic crisis, historic inequalities, um, and um, the, which the pandemic has, of course, revealed or unveiled, especially about if, if, if it's new to you, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, but it's also worsened the, uh, the, 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 the lived experiences, you know, and of particularly the oppressed and exploited. And of course, as you mentioned, the, it's of concern for us about how we can, you know, resist and construct the necessary solidarities and unity amongst the social movements, social groups uh, to, to push back. So it's about, it's not being nostalgic or wallowing in the, uh, the, 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 the crisis, it's about generating responses to those, to those crises and productive crises. Now, of course, as you know, the, the way you formulate the question is really how you're going to, uh, uh, or understand the question is how you will formulate the response. So it's you know, rather a question about, you know, uh, asking problems. But having said that, I mean, the, 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 the situation for the oppressed has become dire. I don't know, whatever marker, whatever metric. Um, and one way I can think and talk about it is so through the uh, uh, Humanities Research Institute, maybe four or five years ago, we started a project which we call Constructing Solidarities Towards a More Humane uh, uh, Urbanism. <clears throat> and that has led me in my work to think about, so what exactly does it mean to be human at this moment in time? And I've been, um, you know, reading sociologists uh, about this, and I think maybe one can tease out the, the, the crisis um, in, in three dimensions. And I know you, a guy, who like numbers, but I don't have many, but you can add the numbers to, to each one of those. So the <laughs> sociologist uh, Goran Therborn builds on Amartya Sen, the uh, 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 Nobel uh, economist. He says this, well, just by way of analysis, he draws through what he calls three types of inequalities. And he's, he starts, first of all, with what he calls life inequalities. In other words, uh, whether you live or die, is a matter of, of social economic uh, inequality. So we can look at you know, who's, uh, who's dying and the ability to hold body and, and, and soul together right now. Um, and again, there are, there, are, there are political and economic uh, reasons, but also geographies to this. And the fact that, um, you know, it, it don't think it escaped many people, the number of, I think it was more than a half a million deaths in the, in the US, right? Yes. I think at this moment, just to mark it, Brazil is seemingly obviously heading that way. Mm. Uh, but, you know, by contrast, I just got Amy Goodman today uh, the, on a report with a Cuban 
uh, effort to develop a vaccine. There are more people today died in Brazil than during the entire um, uh, pand uh, pandemic or, uh, in Cuba. Oh, wow. All right, so something like four or 5,000, just the daily death rate. So, yes. and so now we gotta begin to understand what and how to mark the moment and the geography of it. And of course, the other countries, and I've heard my friend Patrick Bond talk about this in terms of the um, um, Bolsonaro, Biden, and Bojo, and then also a Brussels you know, approach. Now, juxtapose that with Cuba and even also uh, uh, um, the PRC. And I'm not an advocate of the PRC authoritarianism, yeah. All right. I think we should critique them for that. But what they're doing right now in time of saving people's lives. OK. Uh, and of course, yeah, back home in South Chicago, what do we have? We have people, uh, administrations closing public hospitals, right? Yes. In the, in the poorest areas in Chicago. So that's one of the metrics we can use is the life chances uh, have been severely reduced. The other to add on, of course, is the resource inequality. Yes. All right. And that's and of course, my area of focus has been around these three uh, issues of, you know, the gold standards of racialized uh, social formations, the US with its history of plantation slavery and genocide, South Africa, a similar, but also very different history. And then of course, Brazil. Yeah. So the only number I'll mention for you for today is the, the Gini coefficients. <laughs> so they have Gini coefficients of something like 0.7 or point. Point, point 0.79 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, out of, out of one being, you know, perfect inequality and zero being perfect uh, equality. Exactly. Um, maybe one other statistics, because I know you're a labor guy, is, you know, South Africa's official unemployment rate, right, is already in the region of 30% plus. Well, that's the official too. That's the official. All right. Me, so, yeah. so the townships that I work, that, really. double that. Yes. In other words, <laughs> There, uh, uh, there's now organizations of the unemployed. That's the miracle. That's the other part. Mm -hmm. The unemployed, and this is something that I know is dear to your heart, is the ability of the uh, unemployed or the unemployable to organize. Mm -hmm. All right, and these are you know issues because I know you your work is focused on the formally organized. You know the the the, the in the sense of the, of the union, uh, uh, unionized and. We must talk later about you know the possibilities and potentials of, of, of the trade union. The last yes. vector he mentions in terms of inequality is what he calls existential inequality. I mean that's basically status inequality, right? Yes. Um, and of course, this is in the U.S. perhaps most uh, you know obvious through the racialized police killing and, and and the violence. So I think with those three metrics or criteria, we can add metrics basically to argue in short that. If anything, life has become more nasty, more brutal, and more short, right? Mm -hmm. As famous sociologists argue. Now, that has kind of asked me or led me to, to revisit and reach back. So some of the, 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 the you know, um, philosophers or, uh, uh, that I grew up with was, amongst other things, the, um, well, there, there are really two aspects to it. Um, as a... In the Neanderthal as, as, a, as a young teacher and also, you know, recent graduate in 76, one of our mentors who were basically the interlocutors of Fanon, Fanon was, was Steve Biko. Yes. All right. So Biko taught us uh, a critical lesson that I hope, you know, the young uh, 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 social justice advocates take serious, 
which was, and I quote that, um, you know, racism is, is or anti-racism is, is, is less about pigment, pigmentation than it is about consciousness. Exactly. All right, so that was the first intellectual shift that I think, and we see this in the Black Lives Matter and in the US in, in particular, this conflation of color and consciousness. Mm -hmm. All right. In other words, black is progressive, or white is, is bad, or uh, but white is reactionary. That sort of uh, idea. Sure. And again, uh, I've come across, I must say, um, some fascinating, you know, popular education material. There's a WBGH uh, graphic an animated film that basically uh, asks or suggests. It goes something like this: How? Um, um, how skin became uh, became a color, right? And how color became a race. Mm -hmm. All right, so I think those connections have to be traced historically, mm -hmm. all right? And, to, and he traces it through, of course, the Bacon's Rebellion. Of course, what they, what they don't say, and this is maybe the other thing we can talk about is the silences of the Haitian Rebellion. Yes, yes. All right, because you so. can't understand this globally unless you go there. Thank and you. of course, here, is why you know the Black Jacobins must be a pre required reading of CLR. Yes, right. I argue. And, I argue it's actually probably one of the most important books ever written in world history. Easily. That's yeah. I I, I would I would concur. I would concur. Yeah. And just and, and, and like you said, the fact the fact that very few, let alone people in general, but very few scholars or students know of this book on this yeah. campus is one of the scariest things that I've encountered because Absolutely. in my undergrad at Morehouse, we all had to read Black Jacobins. Now we may not have had the best interpretation of it because we're like 18 year old kids, but the fact is, is that we had to know it. And I right. come here and very few students had ever heard of the book, let alone CLR Jane. Well, yeah, shout out to your history teacher or your, you know, uh, uh, social studies, I mean, that was obviously a clear consciousness, but again, in my teaching, this is again something new. So I think our work here is to constantly, um, I guess, make visible or unsilence this sort of uh, 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 curriculum. Yes. All right, and I think this is why the educational you know, project is, is, is key, which is the consciousness part of it. So um, that was, that was foundational in South Africa to move uh, towards, you know, the unity of the oppressed, the unity of all oppressed peoples beyond what was the racialized categories. Because of course their tactic was it still is divide and rule, right? And that was based on different categorizations. So for us, I like to tell my students, you know, race for us was, was, a, was a fighting word. If somebody asks you, what's your race? You know, that would, that would cause a fight. Yeah. Right. And we would, you know, sometimes in the little checkbox, we would just, you know, add uh, and color in the, the um, what's your race? We would say 100 meters. <laughs> 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 because we all argued that we were part yeah. of the human race. So that was, I think, this yeah. is Biko reaching back to the uh, Marxist humanism of Fanon. Exactly. Right. That we first have to see and recognize each other as, 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 as human beings. And I, and, right. and I like the and I like the way you put that too because I think that's something that we often, particularly even if we're not even as scholars, that's something we often forget. But at that point, when you had Steve Biko and you had and you had Fanon's book that was being circulated amongst 
revolutionary people across the globe. That was the idea is that we're talking about the oppressed and the idea of coming together. Even when you look at individuals like Huey P. Newton and his theory yeah. of revolutionary intercommunalism, like his whole argument was exactly that, is that we are a bunch of small oppressed colonized spaces across the globe. We are interdependent islands of capital exploitation. And we have to think of ourselves in solidarity against that particular monster or else we're going to continue to fracture. And that's something that we have seen this past summer and other parts is that there's been always a fracturing at the heart of movements because of exactly what you said. There is this obsession with this idea that color only be under, is, is understood to be oppressed versus right. the actual looking at racial class, like what CLR James was doing, or the Marxist humanist idea of the oppressed as exploited people across right. the globe. And so, yeah, yeah this, is, this is a very relevant issue. No, it's so, it's so I, I, I'm glad you agree. And it's so foundational because there's a lot of quagmires and dead ends. And I must share with you, that for me is much more palpable in the US around this you know, dead ends of identity politics and what I call oppression Olympics. More <laughs> I've never oh, oppression Olympics. That's I've never that's a, I've never heard that phrase. That's, yeah, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, it's about like who's the most oppressed, right? And who's exactly. going to be off of else? And I mean, there's enough. There's a lot of ink spilled, and will continue to be spilled, you know, over this idea of identity and why we need to move to the category of the oppressed. And this is we also grew up with, of course, the famous pedagogy of the oppressed. This is Paulo Freire. So those are two books we grew up with in brown paper rapids, right? And it got taught, you know, outside of school. I mean, another little saying that stood with me, and I'm blessed to have had those educators. I think it's now attributed, as I understand, to Mark Twain, but we had elders who said to us, um, you know, don't, con don't uh, um, confuse, don't let your schooling get in the way of your education. All right, which was the idea that when we went to predominantly and still, well, previously and still predominantly white institutions, don't expect liberation theology from there. <laughs> <laughs> right, so this idea that the institutional transformation, all right, however, we must yeah. push against it, expect, you know, the revolution to come from the campus. Yeah, so it's, it's or as the famous says, it's not going to be televised, right? It's, it has to happen here. And exactly. then we, yeah, we went off campus. So a lot of my work is also, I insist, and even prefer taking students off campus. Yeah, can you, can, can you talk a bit about that? Because that's one of the coolest things that when I first got to this campus and I heard about your courses, yeah. you have this particular project you do with your students in the Champaign community. I don't want to take your fire away from you. I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to let you explain it. But I, I think it ties directly into what yeah. we talked about and why reading Fanon at this yes. moment and those sociologists theoretical frameworks of those three aspects of the oppressed. I think that's so, so, so explain your project and we'll go deeper into that. I think it's really cool. Okay, I just want to, you give me a minute just to close out on that second move that I think we need to make, which sure. is, and that needs to be explained over and over to each generation at each time. That's very Fanon, right? How to make the move and if I can, I use you know this mnemonic for my class. We have to move from class to consciousness, and then from sorry, from color 
to consciousness and from consciousness you have to move to class. Mm-hmm. All right, so racialism for me, as I tried to explain them, is a, t- is a particular form of, of, uh, of capital accumulation. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> right? It's, a, yes, it's that an is economic amazing. project. Yeah, that, that's, that, that has to be the first understood un- idea of, not number one, why race and racism were created and what right. they serve as today. So, yeah. Right, and so we avoid this dead end of which a lot of South African struggles have been hijacked, you know, the idea that we can have non-racialism in a capitalist society, yeah. right? This is, yes. <laughs> and this, this is the nationalist project. Exactly. All right, whether it's neoliberal black nationalism or white nationalism, you know, it's, it's a national, this is again the internationalist principle. But all right, we'll come to that. And yeah, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, so those are the three uh, C's I want to connect. Just, yes. I mean, in terms of explaining to, to my students. And who, was, and who was that, who was that particular scholar Okay, so the, 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 the class project for, for me was introduced through the work of Samir Amin. Some, okay. All right, okay. the African economist, the Marxist. Yes. Um, all right. And I want to make sure the listeners got that. Because yeah, I, yeah. No, no, make sure no. They go we can talk a little bit now. about the yeah. Africanist tradition of Marxism, all right, and the Africanist critique of Euro-Marxism and all of those sorts of fights that people had. But I think uh, what was central to, and maybe, let me add another C, uh, since just to round it out, uh, was a particular form of capitalism called colonial capitalism. Mm. All right, so okay. so that's that's which is which is acting simultaneously in using uh, uh, Amin's idea of modes of production. All right, so neoliberal monopoly finance capital, which is where most people argue you be at right now, was always hand in hand with colonial capitalism and my other people, and I'm reinterpreting Rosa Luxemburg's work, Accumulation by Dispossession. Mm-hmm. So I think Luxemburg was also very insightful. And of course she had lots of fights with Lenin and so forth yes. and so on, right? As you probably know better. But I think this is, we are now back to this brutality of, the, of, the, of, uh, 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 of colonial capitalism and the, ex- the extractative, the exploitative you know, idea that you know, um, exclusion uh, racialized exclusions is, 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 is part and parcel of, of, uh, of uh, uh, resource extraction. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and you, you can't have one without the other. The one exactly. is the, the, the evil twin of the, uh, 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 of the other. Yes. So anyway, we can pick that trajectory up and let you ask me to reflect on the pedagogy. Um, so, I mean, again, we were fortunate, especially under Biko, not only did he help us to think you know, get our conceptual clarities right. Uh, but he also left us with the methodology, which was liberation of freedom is not going to come through the state. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, it's going to come through a dialogue with the oppressed. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's, exactly. that's, that's the point. So for them, uh, uh, and we got to pick up and it maybe was easier because we always rejected the, the racial, the racist institutions. Um, that was created for us. The revolution or the rebellion in 76 was against what we called gutter education. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. I am, um, yeah. But it was, it was what we called Bantu education. <laughs> All right, because we wanted global education because we were people. So we rejected the, and in fact, the proper, the, the name, the official term, and this might be also useful, uh, was Christian national education. Yes. All right, and yeah, I think it's also seminal the role of religion, mm-hmm. right, and religious schools because for us the project there was of course 
and this is one of the uh, was fervur to argue you know what's what's the value of educating you know uh, an uh, dark skin or Africa, uh, uh, african beyond uh, i think it was the sixth grade back then they're just going to become quote unquote ewers of water uh, ewers of uh, uh, of wood and drawers of water hmm. all right in other words that was education not for liberation but for industrial uh, uh, exploitation exactly all right so again this brings back the question of you know education we should have but education for what right and i asked my students are we all gonna you know make a million dollars before we 21 is that what we are doing or how many of you still want to change the world but i beg you better because it may be too late <laughs> so anyway that brings in the politics but to to sharper focus on on what you've just shared in terms of this pedagogy of the oppressed and Fanonian practices was the idea to use, um, well, the Freirian term that comes to mind, and that was my first Portuguese word I, I learned, by the way, was uh, the idea of what Freire called conscientização, yes. which was conscientization. In other words, he was an advocate of adult education. And for him, education was about the transformation of the human being, but the realization of the human potential. And for him, it was starting with where you at. Now, the colonial and state education was always denying what you knew. In other words, it was a disruption and a dislocation from what we call mother tongue education, right? So, yes. the, so this was the rebellion against Afrikaans. You would be cursed if you and and, and ostracized and punished if you spoke in the in your home language. Now, imagine a young kid. All right, at you know elementary school coming in, right, not being able or being taught that the language is speaking at home, all right, is an inferior language and uh, is is an outcast, and it should now move towards you know Afrikaans or English. The, the psychological disruption. So that's another level of you know why multilingualism is so critically important. But anyway, this is all the project of disruption, dislocation, dispossession, and for us it was you know recovering the human through first the language, right? But also the idea that, um, you know, and this was repeated, I guess, very famously. I, I, in, in, 1980, in 1994, during the post-apartheid rebellion, a, a anti-eviction activist uh, was quoted as saying, um, we, are, uh, uh, we are poor, we're not stupid. All right, and again, this academic status and privilege that we have that poor people can't think. Exactly. And it's a very liberal tendency of the white savior complex that people need help. All right, I got to know this in another way from, um, I think a group in Minnesota, you're probably more familiar with this, which is, uh, if you're here because uh, to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you're here because you think your fate is tied up with mine, and how, uh, how, uh, uh, lend a hand, right? Sure. And, yeah, I, I, you yeah. probably know it. That's that's the, the that's yeah. the formulation I got to experience here. But in short, the idea was that uh, I insist on going off campus because they have to ground truth all of this abstract BS. <laughs> Somebody said bad sociology. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. <laughs> <laughs> because look, 
I mean, they, they make up stuff, you know, and it's such abstract stuff. Yeah. And then people get praised, you know, for doing that. And we know it's, 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 I mean, people write journal articles on the sex of an angel and stuff like that. And, you know, what is the, what is the practical relevance of, of all of this? So the idea of ground truthing, you know, the, who's the young lady? I think it was uh, Emma Gonzalez, right? At the column, was it no, wasn't Columbine, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. You remember the the the, um, the tragedy there and what she said, um, that famous speech and the, the most, you know, uh, revolutionary silence in the history of the internet where she just had a minute of silence. And But she had famous, and I, I remember I have a little badge, you know, those things that you pin on you. At, and, and so she said, well, they say this and we say BS. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that. You follow, and this is what I'm trying to suggest to my students. You need your own, you know, BS GPS now. Yeah. All right, but yeah. that needs a historical consciousness. So anyway, the point is to emphasize, Slot, it took a long way to get there, but um, I, we need to ground truth. And by that, I literally mean not just having conversations, but you know, the other pedagogy for me, Gus, is walking yes. through the space the social justice tours, you know, uh, I, I firmly am an advocate of that walking through the space, engaging, in other words, exactly. it's the idea of informal learning yes. and opening up the dialogue. And when they walk through there, I ask them, you know, to tell me or to journal, you know, how do you feel? We go to the North End mm -hmm. and I say, so how do you feel? And those kids who have never been there or have been socialized to expect different, they say that they, they, they're feeling nervous. So then we start the conversation. Where does these feelings come from? You know, where did you learn to say that? I mean, I'll, I'll end up with this story that, you know, in my generation in South Africa, in Jim Crow, yeah, that was probably be before your time. We grew up with actual signs that said Negroes there or colors there or Africans there or whites there. Uh, uh, and, you know, and usually people of color behind the back. But now they're growing up, there's no signs. All right, there's no signs. But when they enter these spaces, you know you don't belong. It's, yeah. yeah. So where does this come from? There's where does a famous it come from? joke yeah. in post apartheid South Africa, you know, where the oppressed have had so much, you know, uh, trouble following orders to go around the back that when they asked the guy to sign at the back of the check, he said he refuses. This is the new South Africa. He's not signing on the back of anything now. <laughs> he, wants to, he, wants, he wants to sign on the front. Anyway, the point I'm trying to say is that the, the consciousness about how you socialize, but also the, 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 the spatial aspect of that. And if you have yeah. time, I'll talk about this question on residential segregation, all right? Yeah, what they call spatial apartheid. I want to yes. bring this oh, word yeah. apartheid back again. It has a good, I think it explains a lot more productively than segregation. Exactly, and I think we. This is kind of the. This is kind of the thing that we've talked about a bit uh, in other spaces too. And looking at and taking, even though you're, even though you're talking about South Africa and also the global perspective in a more local context of what you're arguing, the exact same thing happens in Atlanta in relation to gentrification because you have the exact same politics and the same type of act. Oh, uh, well, I'm using quotation marks for listeners. Activism happening under the guise of anti-poverty or human rights, when in fact, they're literally taking resources, as we just mentioned, away from the oppressed to where they, that, to where they are literally fighting to survive 
in these black working class spaces or in these poverty stricken parts of cities, right? And so it's really interesting when you see how, 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 really, how transnational this issue really is, especially the strategies of the oppressors in doing yeah. these things. And what you said at the beginning really hit that the pandemic has only exacerbated these issues. I mean, I'm sure you heard the stories that this is actually one of the richest periods in Wall Street history was during the pandemic. Right, and we're talking about the you're talking about the the widespread loss of homes across the world, mass death, all these things happening, jobs that will never come back that pay a living wage, and yet Wall Street and those who are who are big stockbrokers have made tens of millions of dollars within a few months, okay. and so here we go, and we're supposed to listen to this leadership class come in and tell us to believe in this system and follow the guidelines of this system that right. reward that kind of exploitation, right? right? And to not resist the colonial project in motion. Yeah. And I just find right. it to be really, really funny because those same people are the ones that are saying that, well, you know, you shouldn't be protesting or, you know, you shouldn't have to find a way to, 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 to put together a project. And the academy is enough to where you can do things. And so, yeah, this is, I'm really glad you're, you're bringing this to the perspective that this is not simply just a U.S. problem, but the strategies and tactics of the ruling class have always been in these in, in this way to exploit oppressed people. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, two things. One, if you ask anybody, uh, you know, of the oppressed, and again, I know better in South Africa, you know, what does freedom mean? They say, well, we want our land back. Exactly. Thank you. Demand is simple. Free to land. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. This is the Mau Mau, you know, rebellion. This is the project. We want our land back. Exactly. I mean, and in South Africa right now, uh, it's very interesting that, I mean, the, AN, the uh, African National Congress, we had lots of fights back then, uh, maybe for some time later, but their a neoliberal nationalist project which produced one of the you know, finest legal constitutions bristling with rights is, is of no value. And I've had fishermen explain to me, and then, well, fish workers, which by the way is another story I need to share with you about yeah. you know, workers at sea. I had fishermen explain to me, the trouble with this is I, I, I can't eat rights. I, I need fish. Exactly, <laughs> thank you. I need my, I need my land back. And so, <laughs> You know, land acknowledgement statements go so far. You know, we, we want our land back. And they said, how can we be free? In fact, April 27th in South Africa coming up now is celebrated, you know, as by the oppressed as unfreedom day, because yeah. they say we can't be land, we can't be free unless we have our land back. And 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 and, and they clear. And so this, the, the the you know ruling elites now in South Africa have gone out through a, a, a treadmill three times and the sad reality is they have all the legal instruments to do what is called expropriation without compensation. Exactly. Thank you. Right? That's, so that's they of... just need to do it, but they dancing yeah. all around commissions and all sorts of stuff. Right. So this is this is the 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 uh, fault line, a very hot fault line in South Africa right now, is the the take back the land and it's happening in all you know forms. And this is what I'm working on right now: um, people occupying buildings. Yes. Taking back land, squatting, 
you know, um, and okay, they, the argument is that we'll just squat everything. They can't evict everybody, mm -hmm. right? So you're having these mass occupations, mass, you know, and you know about, you know, occupying factories and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but yeah, people are staying very precariously. The state has become increasingly more brutal, yeah. right? Um, in, in, in the evictions, um, but it hasn't stopped. And basically because, you know, people have to, they have to have a roof over their head. They have to have uh, clothes to wear. They have to have food to eat, you know, and that's what they're saying, you know? So um, the other point you raised um, around the, the, I mean, the moment in global capital's history at this point. Um, so maybe two things I'll say to that, you probably know better uh, on the second point, but I also was able to watch during the pandemic and I highly encourage, uh, there was a film version uh, by an Australian filmmaker on uh, Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. I don't know if you've seen it. I've heard right. of it. I mean, Piketty's tome is like that. I, mean, I don't know, the weight of the book. <laughs> It's, a, it's an amazing, I don't think anybody reads it. <laughs> so this filmmaker took it upon himself and made one of the most amazing historical documentaries and basically making a very cogent argument that, you know, uh, if at any time capital was democratic, right now it's gone into a system of feudalism. Mm. He makes the parallel back to the pre-French revolution. And then lastly, I don't know, the other guy I've been following is uh, the ex-Greek finance minister, uh, Yanis Varoufakis. Yeah. He talks about a period now of what he calls um, post-neoliberalism as techno-feudalism. In other words, he's arguing it's the, it's the digital uh, 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 feudal lords now, like they had the landlords and the nobility. Yeah. It's the tech companies who are unaccountable, who are ruling the roost, right? And we see what these guys do. Yes. You no, know, the speculative economy. I mean, I don't know if you understand this digital currency stuff, but these guys are just, they're not putting their money back into any productive resources, right? No, and, and, and I'm, glad you, I'm glad you kind of bring that up, though, because that is something that I think that we don't press enough when we're having our critique is this issue of digital currency, because I think that's one of the biggest things in relation to the issues of the oppressed. And again, you know, my big thing is always resources. How right. do we have enough resources to survive? And then how do we have enough resources to build a social movement for liberation? And digital right. currency is one of the worst creations in exactly what you said, is that because you have digital currency, you don't necessarily have to put it back into anything. This is the point. Produce, this is the productive economy is stagnating. Exactly. Have, like, they're not producing stuff anymore. They're going to the speculative world. They might as well be in cyberspace, right? That's creating and no that's value what, other than for themselves. Yeah. And so, that's, and that's anyway. all it is. It's, it's simply to have money just to keep. There's not, there, there, there is yeah. no invested. And again, a lot of this goes back to a lot of the issues in a lot of these government contracts across the world, particularly, I can only speak for the U.S., but all those, all those NAFTA agreements and all the other federal court um, decisions that have unregulated capitalism to allow it to do these things, to go unchecked. And, you know, we haven't seen the, 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 the true fruits of it yet, but this second NAFTA deal that was, that was passed under Trump is so much worse than the first one and yeah. what it allows these companies to do in terms of going, going further unchecked than the first NAFTA deal. 
And I'm sure that there are other governments across the world that are looking at that deal and drafting similar legislation. So I think you're exactly right on this, is that that's another area that we need to be studying and critiquing. And just not because it's growing every day that we see digital currency growing. Yeah, and again, that is a symptom of the crisis, uh, you know, of where we at right now. And maybe, and uh, the idea that they characterize this as a sort of feudalist, you know, uh, 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 relationship, mean, meaning that, I mean, if ever capitalism was democratic, it certainly is not now, no longer now. And even this kind of bailout, I mean, the Biden period now obviously has had some um, relief, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of its uh, social payments. But the reality, you know better than me, uh, in my view, I haven't seen evidence of that going into productive assets. Exactly. All right, Indeed. this is going into, right? It's going into consumption and exactly. it's going, I, I don't know, they have this infrastructure plan that they still have to vote on. Keep your fingers crossed. I guess if that happens, then amongst other things, it'll have some productive value, but okay, that's really just speeding it up, right? I mean, exactly. creating that are fast and- and, 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 we, and you and I both know that by the time that bill finally is voted on, after it gets destroyed by the moderate and centrist and conservative, that it's going to be very little productiveness in the bill when it's finally voted on. Right, right. So I think your comment reminds me, maybe just to uh, segue back to uh, Samir Amin. Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the texts, you know, I, I, I read reflecting on the crisis of capitalism, or what he calls, um, he has an opening chapter that talks about the, the, the crisis of capitalism and the capitalist crisis. In other words, capitalism itself is the crisis. Right? Yeah. We, we should be dealing with, the, not exactly. with the symptoms of, of the crisis, but the crisis itself. Exactly. And this text, and I want to share with you a quote, um, it's called Spectres of Capitalism. It's, the subtitle is a critique of the current intellectual fashions. Um, and it was produced on the sesquicentennial of the uh, manifesto, the Communist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. So that was, well, 1990, this was published 98, the manifesto was 150 years oh, earlier, right? Yeah. But anyway, he starts out uh, with a very famous reminder, which is why I found him to be insightful. And if I can just find it, I want to read it without distorting it. It's basically a, a riff, a very insightful riff that, um, like the manifesto, it's good to recall the plain re- rationale, which is one that capitalism is incapable of overcoming its fundamental contradictions. Mm-hmm. All right. And then he goes on to argue, and he uh, puts it as a little bit more uh, meat to this. He says, history has proven that capitalism, like all social systems, is able at each stage of its expansion to overcome its own permanent contradictions, but not without worsening the violence with which they will be experienced by succeeding generations. In other words, this he argues is at the core of the manifesto, it's at the core of the Marxian spirit, which is this idea that maybe in terms of the geography of capitalist expansion starting in colonial, there was a way that's what David Harvey might call the spatial fix, right? Capitalism would get up here and go elsewhere. But now we are at a period that expansion is no longer possible. Mm-hmm. All right, we now have, well, what started out as mayor was China, 
also in a form of what some people might, I think, rightly call state capitalism. Yeah, state Different capitalism. characteristics. Yes. All right. But it's a worldwide system. The Soviet mm -hmm. Union, I mean, again, this is the challenge that faces us. But he argues if that possibility of geographic expansion is no longer possible, the only way it's expanding now is by deepening the crisis through violence. Exactly. Yeah. So we're seeing increasing forms of violence, and this is Rosa Luxemburg. This is, you know, uh, uh, barbarism or socialism. Yeah. And I'm of the opinion that right now we have to declare ourselves, you know, as part of the, the, the movement for the social redistribution. In other words, we have to declare ourselves not just democratic socialists, but socialists. Thank you. Thank you. I, so All right, because they but again, yeah, it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is exactly the, the, I think this is the project right now. So, uh, and it's because there is no other alternative. It's If it's not clear right now that the social redistribution of wealth is become a matter of life and death, I don't know when. And that's, so, and that's the part, that's the part that really gets to me and why I'm so adamant about doing this series and doing the work that we do is because when does it get to that point? And Terry Barnes, who did an episode earlier, had a great point about this. When do we as people get to that point to where we understand this as life or death? Because there is that fraction of society, many of them are responsible for just kind of, well, I can always just walk away once the protests are over and go back to my life and not have to worry about this, who feel as though it's not life or death. And we have the other segment that are literally scrapping and fighting for their lives right now as we speak and have been for so much, for so long. How do we get over that hump? And it's exactly what you said is that until we stop with the, you know, the, the kind of the half trooping or the half, you know, wedding, everything we do and just fly out say that this is, we have to have a redistribution of resources and wealth if we are going to survive and build organizing or organizations right. then we're not gonna then there's just nowhere else to go there is no i like the way you said that too professor uh, Sal. you said there are no there are no other alternatives no. at this point and that's the argument i get when i when i get those people who come in and say oh you're too radical you can't talk about these things we still have a chance like give me one actual other alternative that we currently have after this pandemic because yeah. if this pandemic doesn't show you the, how, how gross the symptoms of what's been what's been existing for so long have gotten that you clearly yeah. are on the same reality that right. other people are, are living in. Right, right. So no, again, from the political economy, I, 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 I think, you know, it's, it's, it's clear and evident. But now grappling with the same question you raised, and I guess Terry is also with, so what is it that's stopping us from seeing the plight of our brothers and sisters? Mm -hmm. All right, or as other humanists have talked about, the pain of others, right? This empathy and those sorts of connections. And Gus, tell you the truth, again, maybe, you know, as I grow older or wiser, I've started to lean into the kind of feminist approaches. And okay. uh, personally for me, it actually was, you know, the passing of my late sister uh, was an anthropologist. And she was able to share with me, amongst other things she wrote about, mothering and, uh, and uh, uh, in, in marginalized spaces. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is, and I think Ruby is also doing that sort of work. Yeah. You know, this, this, this bond, we have to think, pay more attention. And 
it's something beyond just the, the solidarity of the brotherhood that develops because you're working in the same factory, right? Yeah, we're I think past that stage up. at this point. Right, right. No, and like, uh, sorry, I, I missed that. I said we're, we're, we're beyond that stage at this point. Right. So yeah. I think there, there's a lot to be said about, you know, spending time together in a factory floor and building up that connection and getting to know people and going through that struggle that builds that brotherhood. But of course, we know now that the factory floor is, well, the factory has been outsourced. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> what we are left with, by and large, and in South Africa in large, is, is also the family. All right. And this is where I'm beginning to get wiser. As I said, you know, introduced by my sister's work on how uh, young mothers who were stigmatized, you know, in marginalized areas for kind of quote unquote breathing, sorry, breeding and both breathing, you know, like, you know, uh, like rabbits. In other yes. words, they have more kids than so all of that stigmatization. And we ourselves, I must say, and even although I mentioned to you about racism, look, an elder of mine who also just recently passed, always said, um, look, we, we are all infected by this stuff. That's, that's the first part of it. To use the, 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 the you know, uh, medical analogy, which is so apt right now. And we've got to develop a vaccine. And this is the anti-racism vaccine, which is to understand. And there's a quote from Fanon, which I just don't remember, about getting rid of the, 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 the toxins in our, in our mind, right? The colonial toxins. So we are to unlearn this, that's the point. You know, just as much as you learned racism, you can unlearn, mm -hmm. but you need education and elders and experience. But I was had to be schooled about the extent and the beauty of that type of love and caring. Mm -hmm. And recently I saw this on display on the, at the ceremony for the commemoration by the mothers of the victims of gun violence. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, and I don't know what to make of it. Also, I saw these, these mothers are now running for elected office and those sorts of things. But I've, uh, and again, you know my view on elected politics and stuff, but I must say at, at the municipal level, I am, uh, again, I'm open to be convinced to the country, right? Exactly. But obviously as you go up from there, the corporate you know, influence begins to, yeah. to, to dominate. So most recently, was it the mother of Tamir Rice mm -hmm. um, critiqued? And I know you know better than me. Who's the artist who, who won a Grammy or uh, of a, a, a rap version on the um, execution of, of her son, Tamir Rice? Oh. Was it at the Emmys? It anyway, was, it the was Grammys. A, it, was a, but, it was the Grammys, but I can't remember who the artist is. Yeah. Anyway, so what is uh, Samir Rice, the mother? tweet the next day. Yeah. She's sick and tired of these people making money. Yes. Com right? Commodifying, it, commodifying this. Uh, that's right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't bring a son back and it doesn't build anything. Exactly. And that's maybe the other point that I wanted to, you know, share with you and what, what I admire of, of your work. I mean, I think you, like me, grew up with this idea that you've got to build something. Yeah. You know, you can't just, you can't just work with people. You've got to build institutions. You know, you have to build organizations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have setbacks, as we know we do have, but sure. if you don't build the unity of the oppressed through organizations, you're going to have these hashtags floating around becoming global corporations, yep. right? And they're free-floating, not accountable to anybody, and usually yep. end up being corrupted and co-opted. 
by global and now capital. We're seeing, and now we're seeing a lot of these corporations now that are facing the brunt of not only their own members, but possible federal intervention to find right. out where all that money has been going. Right. right. And right. so again, it's 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 I'm glad you brought that up though, because that's 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 really that that's the that's kind of the end game for a lot of what Tamir Rice's mother is seeing happening and what right. Fanon warns us about in his works with the nationalist neoliberal project. And he was yeah. prophesizing exactly what would happen if we don't, as you mentioned, we don't build something. And then when something doesn't work, then we reevaluate and then yeah. we try something else, right? You know, no, revolution absolutely. is always going to be a living thing, right? right? It doesn't just stop. You have to try and create and you have to have that type of, this is life or death. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you said no, that. And, and, and in your work, I mean, the, the, you have to have the discipline and the accountability, all right? And so I grew up where we were in a movement and there was a discipline, there was an, a, a, an accountability, there was yep. a mandate. You didn't do things without a mandate. That's right. You were accountable, you know, and there was neighborhood organizations. And But that was one of the first things that the ANC did when they, when they returned from exile, they dismantled those structures. Yep. And they created a party. That's right. All right, and we can see what is. And this is the party is the first step. It's the it's the graveyard of all of the movements. That's right. All right, mm -hmm. and of course from there you. This is why the state becomes you know the 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 the, the colonial state that it. And this is the tragedy of uh, African independence is mm -hmm. demobilize the anti-colonial movements. Exactly. Perfect. All right, and Thank you. yeah, there are great representations of this, and I guess. Our task right now, as I see, you know, in South Africa, there's just to, you know, switch it out to kind of more optimistic, um, uh, the idea that you can fool people, you know, some people, some of the time, but not all the people, all of the time. The students are standing, uh, fighting back, as yes. of course they do. The fees must fall, the roads must fall. Yep. The students against austerity right now, I've been, you know, uh, enthused by students against exclusions, your amazing strike, all right, on the campus. Who can forget yeah. that? Very yeah. memorable. I still have my hat that I got from the, I don't part with that. Good, and excellent. <laughs> I think at another occasion you reflected, you know, and what was um, um, the, your predecessor's name? Kelly? Kelly? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had the privilege of her being in one of my classes and what a firebrand. And then she went on to lead, you know, amazing stuff. And of course, you took it to even further heights. But that was the point about you've got to work and build in organization. You can't yeah. be a free floating, um, you know, cannon, you know, because and usually, not have a mandate. And this is the discipline. So the I see this coming back in South Africa. Because the colonial, the colonial powers will see you as someone, as an individual. And of course, what are they going to do? Co-optation. Immediately, Absolutely. immediately, and then we Absolutely. see again. It's it's always funny when you hear people say, "Where are all the leaders right now?" <laughs> like they, you know what I'm saying. Like you know, yeah. say the '60s and '70s, we had over we had dozens of leaders, and you could point to and say that person is a leader. Where are they all now in tw in the in the, right. in the 21st century? Where are they? Right. <laughs> yeah, which is also to emphasize, and I don't need to remind you, I probably yeah. do another show on the anti-democratic tendencies within the trade union movement, right? Oh, very much so. Oh, <laughs> so, very much so. 
It's right, which is why I, I think yeah. the idea of, of democratic movements, we have to hold on to that, all right? Yes, we have to practice democratic yeah. movements and institutions at the civic level, at the trade union level. And again, now in South Africa, you know, what's really heartwarming for me is there's a union of, uh, of, of, of people who've been evicted, mm. all right? They're organizing themselves now in tenant unions because they're occupying, you know, multi-story buildings. And there's movements of the oppressed, the group I'm working with, the housing assembly, all right? And it's just amazing what they've been doing. I mean, with, you know, a tenth of the resources and the indignities that they suffer daily being evicted during a pandemic, some of them naked. Yeah. All right. But they live to fight the next day. Yeah. You know, so my role and with Falnek has really been just to, just to uh, amplify mm -hmm. those voices. You know, and that's so, the, and, and that's and I think that's what we have to continue to do, we're, regardless of what level we're at. We're we're in we're in the scholar level, we're in the neighborhoods, etc. We have to amplify the voices and the actions to strengthen and build those movements. Even if we are themselves, even if we're not directly in the movement, it is our job. And this is always my biggest issue with the trade union movement in general is that. There's very few times, like if there's a strike happening in Chicago or Minneapolis, Atlanta, et cetera, all the unions should be putting out statements of support or rallying mo or mobilizing support, bringing them food, getting a strike fund started. That should be the consensus around the world. And, and again, to have that kind of non-solidarity is the reason why the much of the labor movement today has been corporatized and become a business union model, which again, right. as you mentioned, is not in the rank and file or the local spaces to control. It is, like you said, undemocratic. And I yeah. think that's the best way for us to end. And I love but, your lesson there is that, yeah, at, at the base of what we do, we have to build institutions that are democratic at their heart. Yeah. And that is the way that we're going to ever fight honestly the anti-racism and anti and fight racism and the colonial projects that continue to take away oppressed people's rights and resources. That's what right. we currently are. And those right. and, and like you said, the good sociology always Not points the to those. <laughs> always points to those points to those issues. If you're reading some sociology and it doesn't point to those questions, then you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and you gotta you gotta have a GPS to 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 be able to detect which which way is which way is up and down. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm telling uh, Professor Ken Sal, thank you so much for this yeah. wonderful, enlightening interview. I'm telling you, I know our listeners are gonna get a lot out of this. I I've, I've known you for years, and even I got a lot out of this just from this, blessing, just this short conversation. So so appreciative. Okay. I want to end off with two things in South Africa. Whenever we have a wonderful dialogue or we have a meeting, we always say uh, a luta continua. Yes. Right? Which, of course, is the, the Portuguese for the struggle continues. And then there's a call and response, all right, that has uh, a mandla. And then you have to say a wetu, which means power is still ours. So I say a mandla. And you have to say a wetu. So a let me to. do that. And I'll say Amandla. Away too. There we go. <laughs> All right. Power is still ours. Take care. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Professor Kinsalo. You just had another episode of Off the Shelf Revolutionary Readings in Times of Crisis. I hope you got a lot out of that episode. We will see you next time. This has been Augustus Wood and the Humanities Research Institute. 
Take care and be safe. Power to the people. Namaste. See you guys.